0: First John chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 17, a familiar passage for those of us that have been Christians for any sort of time, a challenging passage for all of us. Uh, the title of this message is, Are You Gratified or Satisfied? Are you gratified or satisfied? There is a difference. Culture wants you to be concerned with gratification. Christ offers you satisfaction and true satisfaction. We'll kind of tease this out in our text, 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15, reading and teaching from the New American Standard. The Apostle John writes and says in 1 John 2, 15, Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away. And also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we just are going to need your help this morning to really get this Believe it, receive it, and live it. Lord, I would just confess before my brothers and sisters that so many of the very things that this text is warning us about, I'm enamored with, attracted to, I pursue after, I give too much time and attention and resources to. And there's more things I don't even see in my own life that I'm blind to. We are so thankful for the Holy Spirit who Christ you and the Father sent to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment, to open our eyes to the true nature of the things of the world and the glorious nature of Christ and the love of the Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that it's your job to pour the love of the Father into our hearts. Do that this morning in such a way that God's love would rule in our lives. His love for us and our love for the Father would be greater than anything the world has to offer. We need your help with that, Lord. We admit that we're distracted people. And yet we have this incredible salvation. Our sins are forgiven. And we know the Father. We've overcome the evil one. We're strong in the word of God and the spirit in us. Lord, restore unto us the joy of our salvation that the world would look less shiny, less attractive, attractive, that the mask would be removed from it. We'd see it for what it is, but also we want to see Christ for who he is. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that it's your job to exalt Christ in our hearts and our minds. Do that this morning. We need the greater glory of Christ to capture our hearts, that the lesser glory of the world wouldn't pull on us as strongly as it does. We're so thankful for your living active, inerrant, wonderful, powerful word, and the Holy Spirit who teaches us it and works it in our lives. Lord, please anoint me to teach and preach. Lord, we don't want to waste our time here. We truly want to be transformed people for your glory. So anoint me to teach and preach in a way that's faithful and fruitful and help us to hear and respond by grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, The book of 1 John has been fun, but it's also been challenging, hasn't it? It's a challenging book, partly because it really gets at this issue of obedience, of obeying God's commands, and a lot of us just don't like that for a litany of reasons, and uh, 1 John, the Apostle John, is really pressing this upon us, obeying God's commands, We talked about before that one of the mistakes that we often make as parents is we give our kids directives and they ask why, honest questions, and we say, because I said so. And that's one of our tools as parents, but it's not a very faithful one, it's not a very good one, and God is a much better parent than us. He gives us a lot of directives, imperatives, commands, but he never really just pulls the because I said so card, although if anybody ever could, it would be God. God. And yet, he gives us some deeper reasons. Why has God given us commands? Helps us understand that. Why does he call us to obedience? We have to first understand the backdrop of the gospel, right? Though we've been given multitudinous commands in Scripture, and though we are called to obedience, our salvation is not dependent upon our keeping of the commands or how well we behave. Someone ought to say, Thank you, Jesus. Our salvation is dependent upon Christ who kept the commands in our stead and died on the cross to pay the price for our failure to keep the commands. And our salvation is based upon Jesus and what he's done and we put our faith in him and our hope in him and repent of our sins and we are saved. This is the good news. The good news for men, women, and children who have a hard time obeying commands. The good news is we have a savior. We lived a perfect life because we couldn't. Died on the cross so that we won it and has given us new life. And yet that new life doesn't free us from the commands. And in some ways it commits us in an even more deeper level to obedience. Why does God still call us to obey if our salvation is dependent upon our obedience to the commands? Why is that? Well, there's a few reasons. Let's just mention two. One is for the glory of God we are called to obey God's commands for the glory of God. Because in the beginning, God made us. And he made us in his own image. We are therefore image bearers, right? We bear the image of God. Now, the image of God was marred in us through sin, through original sin and through our own sin. The image of God is marred in us and obscured and broken and perverted in some way. But when we're born again, Through faith in Jesus Christ, when we're made brand new, we are remade, so to speak, in the image of God. And now by the work of the Holy Spirit, as children of God, we're being conformed to the image of Christ. And so the wonderful glory of the Christian life is this original intent of God is coming out ever more than before. This image of God, right? Jesus is the light of the world, and yet he said, you are the light of the world. He's the big light, and we're the little lights. He's like the sun, and we're like the moon. We reflect him. And as image bearers, we are called to reflect the one in whose image we have been made. And the commandments tell us something of the nature of God, the essence of God, the quality of God, what God is like in righteousness and in holiness. And when we pursue those things, when we live that way, we show to a world that desperately needs to know a little bit of what God is like. Because I have news for us. The world is not reading the Bible the world is not coming to church. The world is not pursuing theology and doctrine in the presence of Christ. So very much what the world is ever going to know about what God is like is going to come through what they see in our lives. How terrifyingly wonderful. So obedience matters because of God's glory, because we're image bears, and God is glorified when we live lives that are consonant with who he is for God's glory. But obedience also matters for our good. This is important. God did not only give commands to show what he was like. He also gave commands to show what life ought to be like. And when we walk in obedience to God, there's a certain fruit that comes from our lives in that. He shows humanity the way that we ought to live, the way that we ought to interact, the way that we ought to be. And there's always opposing voices. There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is death. God wants to show us the way to right living, fruitful life. That is why Jesus said, I'm the way. That's part of that. Listen to what God said to a rather disobedient Israel through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 48. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. You see what God is saying to Israel? He's saying, listen, I'm trying to lead you in the right way to live. I'm trying to lead you for your own good. I'm trying to reveal to you through commandments partially what's right and what's wrong, what's harmful and what's fruitful, what's gonna bring ruin and pain into your life and what's gonna profit and bring well-being. How many of us, me included, can testify to the truth of that passage? God says, if only you had listened to my commands, which I give you for my glory and for your good, life would have been different. Obedience matters for God's glory and for our good. And Jesus endeavored to boil it down for us. You know, when people are, people like to argue, okay, so what is obedience? And do I need to obey this? And what about that? And does this still matter? And what about this portion of it? And Jesus said, here's the deal. Here's the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All right, the rest of it is details. If you go after that one, Hey, forget the rest. Go after that one, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the greatest one. And when we endeavor to do that, God is gonna get the greatest glory. And that is gonna be for the greatest good in our lives. Jesus boiled it down for us. What the apostle John is doing for us in the text today is showing us what challenges that primary commandment. He's showing us the struggle. He's showing us what confronts, what endeavors to come against that commandment for God's glory and our good to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The text today reveals what challenges that. You see, we live in a culture of instant gratification, don't we? Instant gratification. Instagram. (laughs) Google right? Like, remember when you had to, like, try to figure something out? Nobody tries to figure something out anymore. I've been helping my friend restore an old uh, 1973 Lamb Rover last couple weeks, and every time we came to a problem, we'd just be like, oh, bro, Google it. <laughs> We're like, how does that fuel pump work? I don't even get it. Oh, Google it. Gosh, how do we adjust the carburetor? Just Google it, right? Nobody tries to figure things out anymore thanks to Google, and Google is just giving us what we want. We want it now. We want it immediately. We want Instagram, we want the sound bite, we want to be able to Google it and get it. We love Amazon. <laughs> so old school to like get in the car and go to a store. What is even a store anymore? <laughs> Why not just go to Amazon? And Amazon is even good enough. I want Amazon Prime. <laughs> right? Because I can get it overnight anything for 5.99 and I want it overnight. (laughs) I want it now. I want to feel the lust for it in this instant and have it tomorrow morning. I love Amazon. Anything I want, I can get tomorrow through Amazon Prime. That's our culture. They're just giving us what we want. We want instant gratification, and we mean instant. And our text is trying to teach us something about that. The more we endeavor to be gratified, the less we will find ourselves satisfied, is what the text is trying to say. And yet we find the struggle within ourselves, that we love to be gratified. We will actually sacrifice being satisfied on the altar of being gratified. So verse 15, for God's glory and for our well-being, gives us this command. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. It's the first direct command given to us in 1 John. He's been giving us all these stark contrasts that amount to commands and directives for us. These stark contrasts, right? Like in verse six of chapter one, if we say that we have fellowship with Jesus and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. A stark contrast that... Helps us to think about obedience. Verse eight of chapter one. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Stark contrast. Chapter two, verse four. The one who says I've come to know Jesus and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Chapter two, verse nine. The one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. John likes it black and white, light and dark stark contrasts that have been for us making us think about our lives and our walks, right? But now he gives us the first really direct imperative. The first thing he says is a direct command is do not love the world nor the things of the world. Literally in the Greek grammar, it's stop loving the world. He assumes his audience Is loving the world. He says, Stop loving the world. What does that mean? Because there is so much about this world that we love. I love people. I love surfing. I love Mexican food. (laughs) I love my wife. I love my kids. I love the mountains, the eastern Sierra in the summertime. I love mountain streams. I love hunting. (laughs) I do. I love fishing. There's so much that we love in the world. And yet we read this, do not love the world. What does that mean? Well, we have to understand love, the word used here, and we have to understand world, the idea of it used here. So I'm not going to try to back us out of this. We need to come at this text with some real critical sort of care. I'm not going to try to back us out of it and justify our love for the world. But we truly want to know what the text says. I'm also not going to try to make us think something that God isn't endeavoring to say through the text. So a little bit of careful study. Do not love the world nor the things of the world. The word loved used here in the verb form is agapeo, right? It's a verb form of the noun agape. And the idea in this context is this, to esteem or love in a way that indicates a direction of the will, okay? It's stronger than phileo, right, another word for love in the Greek, which is is just feelings, warm affection, the kind of love expressed by a kiss. This is the kind of love that forms the way that we think, feel, and act. Okay, verb form. Don't love the world in a way that forms the way that you think and feel and act, the direction of the will. And don't love it in a way that you're endeavoring to find your joy in the world. Okay, that's what it's getting at here. It's not just affectionate love. It's not the way that I love burritos, It's talking about trying to find joy, identity, will, meaning, and purpose in the things of the world. It's to love something on the basis of high regard for its value or importance. To take pleasure in, to light, to delight in. So don't ascribe too much value to the things of the world. We haven't defined world yet, hold on. But this form of love, the verb being spoken of here has to do with direction of will, finding joy, identity, forming the way that we think, high regard, importance, value, taking pleasure in. It's to delight in. We see this used in John chapter 12 where the Pharisees were interested in Jesus and some of them believed in Jesus, but they wouldn't follow Jesus for this reason. It says they loved that kind of love, same Greek word, they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. What people thought about them formed their will. What people thought about them affected their joy. What people thought about them was ascribed great importance. That's the idea here, okay? It's a a big concept. Okay, we get that. But aren't there things in the world that are wonderful gifts from God, that are for our pleasure, that are valuable, that are important, that we're supposed to esteem, that we're supposed to enjoy? Certainly there is. So what's the idea of world here? The Greek word is cosmos, right? This is where we get our word cosmos. <laughs> or as most people would say, cosmos. <laughs> world. World. Okay, there are three basic ways that the word world is used in the New Testament. Sometimes it's used to refer to planet Earth, right? The cosmos, that's where we get that word. That is not the meaning here. Sometimes it's used to refer to people. Like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. It's not talking about trees and dolphins and mountains. It's talking about people, So sometimes this word, cosmos, is used to refer to people. That's not the meaning here. Sometimes, several times in the New Testament, the word world is used to refer to the organized evil system with its principalities and practices that is under the authority of Satan, which includes certain teachings and ideas, cultural realities, attitudes, Activities that are contrary to the person of Christ. That is the meaning here. Those things that we see in culture, in the world, that are contrary to God, contrary to who Christ is and what he teaches and what he stands for. It starts to get at something that so many of us have, a fixation on the material over the spiritual. It starts to get at this idea that so many of us have, the promotion of self over others. It starts to get at this idea that so many of us give ourselves to, which is pleasure over principle. There are all sorts of pleasures I pursue against principles I know because of an ungodly sort of love for them. So the world here in this idea means everything that opposes Christ and his work on earth. It's what Jesus was talking about in John 14 and in John 16 when he called Satan the ruler of this world. Remember that? Jesus said Satan is the ruler of this world. He didn't mean the earth, right? He didn't necessarily mean all the people. He meant this system of thought, of idea, that forms culture of things that are contrary to Christ. The sort of world we're talking about when we say the Christian has three great enemies, Satan, the flesh, and the world. We're not talking about people there. We're not talking about the earth there. We're talking about this system, this ungodly tone and tenor that we're all aware of. This is what Paul was getting at when he called Satan the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4, lowercase g the God of this world. He didn't mean the earth. He didn't mean the people. He meant this system. In Luke sixteen eight, Jesus referred to all unsaved people as sons of this world. It's consonant with the domain of darkness referred to by Paul in Colossians chapter one. He talks about the believer through faith in Jesus having been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. Okay, hold on. Now we're getting a little idea of what love means, a little idea of what world means. So here's sort of the idea of verse 15 in my own words. Do not let the content of this world that is contrary to Christ direct your will. Do not seek ultimate pleasure in it or delight in it. Do not place high value on or attempt to find your true joy in that. Uh, I typed a typo. That kind of world and the stuff it offers—I think "kind" is not supposed to be there. Do not let the content of this world that is contrary to Christ direct your will. That's that's the biggie. That's the struggle. Right? Because the will, Jesus said, is to be formed by this You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That pursuit is supposed to form the will. So then, how we think, how we feel, how we act, and how we interact, the way that we live. But the daily struggle is that we are bombarded by counter Christ messages. We live in a culture that is counter Christ. We absorb continually media that is counter Christ. Be it through movies, TVs, internet, magazines, right? All the time, we're absorbing this world that we're being warned about. Indeed, we are in this world. And yet Christ said, we're not supposed to be of this world. In other words, don't let the content of this world that is contrary to Christ direct your will. Why? For God's glory... Let's show the world a different reality, a truer king, and for our good. There's a better way of being. There's a better way of living. This verse tells us that so often we find ourselves looking for love in all the wrong places. You saw that coming. So loving the world then is the sin, the sin, the sin Loving the world is the sin of allowing our appetites, our ambitions, and conduct to be fashioned according to worldly principles. Okay, okay, okay. We would all agree with that. Yes, 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 yes. But how do we discern whether or not we're falling into this? Because honestly, it's not always easy to discern. I was praying this morning that, that the word would be like a mirror to us. You know it's really easy to do? Billy Graham said this one time. He said, the greatest sin in America is listening to sermons. <laughs> Weird for a preacher to say. What did he mean? he mean? He meant that we often hear sermons, but we don't hear sermons. You know what I do a lot of times when I'm reading a book or I'm hearing a sermon? I'm thinking about the person who needs to hear it. You ever do that? Some of you already doing that this morning. You're like, oh, dude, that guy so needs to hear this message. I'm totally getting the CD for John. So needs this. It's really easy for the word to be like a window that we look at others through, but the word is supposed to be a mirror that reveals our true self to us. So we, we, we need to think about discerning whether or not we're loving the world in a sinful way because it's not always easy to discern, especially if most of our consumption, most of what influences us, most of what we set our eyes on and give our mind to is the stuff of the world, the things that are contrary to Christ. So how do we begin to discern this? Well, we can ask a few questions. What engrosses our thoughts and our conversation? That's a hard one. Aren't you glad that we're not all mind readers? Wouldn't it be terrifying if I knew what you were thinking and you knew what I was thinking? If your spouse knew what you were thinking sometimes? But we must know what we are thinking. We must read our own minds. We must honestly confront what is the stuff of my thoughts? What engrosses my mind? What fills my heart? A good way to tell is what comes out in our conversations. Jesus said, What comes out of the mouth is from the heart. What comes out of the mouth is a reflection of the heart. That hurts, but we have to think about it a little bit. What do we truly spend our time ruminating about? Is it the stuff of the world, or is it the stuff of the Word? The stuff of this Antichrist culture? or the stuff of Christ himself. Another way to think about it is do we have an unwillingness to part with something? Something that might be contrary to God's purposes for our lives. If there's a real unwillingness to surrender those things, it may be a relationship. It may be some sort of chemical dependency. It may be something that we run to in the time of help. It may be some possession. It may be some position or status. Anything that we find ourselves not wanting to live without is an idol. Helps us to see the ways that we've been influenced by the world. Another way that we can tell if we're loving the world in a sinful way is if we are discontent with our portion. Ouch. Listen, if we were all content with our portion, Amazon would totally suck. <laughs> but Amazon doesn't suck. Amazon is awesome and Amazon is making a lot of money. Why? Because so many of us are discontent with our portion and that's a little mirror that says, wait a minute. Maybe I'm loving the things of the world too much if I'm discontent with my portion. That might have to do with relationships. Might be that you don't have the significant other and that's what's directing your will. That's what's affecting your joy. If I only had him, I would be full of joy. It's that dangerous place. Another way we can think about this is asking whether or not we're enjoying and pursuing the things of the world with more joy and zeal than the things of God. Now that doesn't mean that we can't enjoy and pursue surfing with all of our zeal. Listen, a true love of God allows us to enjoy things more but need them less. You get that? So, we're not talking about pursuing art or the outdoors or fun with friends or hobbies or activities. But things that are contrary to Christ, which make up the bulk of our culture, are we pursuing after those more than we're pursuing the kingdom of God? More time, more thought, more consumption? I mean, what if I was to say something like, do you spend more time reading your Bible or watching movies? Oh gosh, so unfair. Totally unfair, I admit it. Totally unfair. But, but in a safe place, as people who love each other and who love God. Can we, can we honestly ask those kind of questions? Right? Because if I spend way more time with TV or the internet than I do the word of God, that's just going to begin to direct my will. That's all there is to it. And most of us do. So most of us really need to hear this passage. Most of us really need to evaluate our lives in this way. There's got to be some active counterbalance in our lives to the counter Christ culture that we consume continually. How many C's were in that sentence? Check it out and see. (laughs) Number five. (sighs) We know we're in danger of loving the world too much when we take pride in earthly distinctions, right? Right? I'm the CEO. I'm the one who has authority. Or I'm the one with this bank account. Or I have the house on the hill. Or I have, or I've done, or I am. When those things direct our will, when they form our identity, we're in trouble of loving the world too much. Pride in earthly distinctions. And finally, seeking to obtain things in a wrong manner. This is what idols drive us to. You know that Israel got to the point in following the idols of Molech and Ashtoreth and Baal of sacrificing their children in fire to appease these idols. That's a horrific picture of seeking to obtain things the wrong way. But we do it all the time. We sacrifice financial integrity, we sacrifice right relationships within our family, we sacrifice all these different things in the pursuit to obtain. We're willing to cheat in this area so that we can have more here. Willing to deceive in this area so that we can get her or him. Those are things that begin to show us gosh, maybe I'm loving the world. Things that are contrary to Christ too much in such a way that it's affecting my will. When I don't get them, it affects my joy. When I get them, I think I have ultimate pleasure. When in truth, you're merely gratified but you find yourself unsatisfied. This tension is something that John would have heard Jesus talk about, right? Jesus said in Matthew chapter six, this is an important one. This is really important. No one can serve two masters. Jesus is saying that for the human, it's impossible. No one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. And his example in that context was you cannot serve both God and money but it could be anything. Christ's point was that humans don't have the capability of living a truly bifurcated, divided life. Jesus also said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. That word pure there means undivided, excuse me. We don't have the ability to love the world and love God. That's why John says in verse 15, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We don't have the ability. And speaking of our love for the Father, not his love for us, okay? Our love for God. The New New Living Translation says it this way, paraphrase, when you're loving the world, you're not loving God. We don't have the ability to do both. We're called to fidelity. We're called to faithfulness to Christ. This is the divided life. This is the struggle. It's not possible. Again, that's why John says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Our love for the Father. We know he loves us. His love for us is not affected by our love for the world. Someone should say, thank you, Jesus. But our love for him, and we're called to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, is profoundly affected by our love for the world. We cannot do both. And the good news in the text is that we are offered a better affection, a greater love. The Father is more lovable than the world. Christ is more worthy of our love than anything in the world. Imagine, uh, well, I'll say it this way. One of the things I get to do frequently as a pastor is, is uh, be the officiant at people's weddings. Super cool thing, right? Super fun, super neat. Imagine if I was leading people and saying the vows and I led them to say something like this. Um, the end of the vows, the ones that I would usually say, I give myself, no, they say this. And forsaking all others, I give myself wholly to you. So they repeat after me line by line, and forsaking all others, and then they say that, and forsaking all others. I give myself holy, and I say it like that, just feel it, wholly to you, and they say it, I give myself wholly Holy to you. And what have I said after? Except for the other man that I love now and will love forever. Impossible. They couldn't stand at the altar and say, I forsake all others and give myself wholly to you, except for the one that I love, the other one. Impossible. That's what the text is getting at. It's not possible to love the world and love God as we're called to love God. So there are signs that we're loving the world too much. We need to forsake all others and give ourselves wholly to him and have no except. This is hard stuff. So verse 15 is reminding us that there is a better affection, the father. There is a greater love than anything the world has to offer. Now verse 16 reminds us that there are better gifts a greater joy. Okay, if verse 15 was a commandment, verse 16 is the reasoning. Verse 16 says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, passions, the lust of the eyes, maybe possessions, and the boastful pride of life, maybe having to do with position, is not from the Father, but is from the world. There's the reasoning. Now what is the lust of the flesh? we would generally think of that as being some sort of sexual desire. It includes that, but it's not limited to that. The idea of the lust of the flesh is inordinate desire for anything. Inordinate, unmerited desire to be hot after something. It could be something good that we long for in a wrong way. Lust could be something bad, but it could be something good that we're making too ultimate. The flesh, we know, this is a lust of the flesh, okay? So inordinate desires of the flesh. We understand when we speak about flesh in this context, we're talking about human nature as corrupted by sin. That thing was, it was nailed to the cross, but still rears its ugly head from time to time until we are in glory. Put together lust of the flesh. The idea is a life-dominated by the senses rather than by the spirit a life dominated by Christ, counter excuse me christ culture rather than the word of god inordinate desire rooted in the sinful nature things that fight against god's will in our lives galatians chapter 5 gets at it very well right verses 19 through 24 it says there's two ways to live walk in the spirit or walk in the flesh. And then it says, and there's two kinds of fruit and the fruit of life in the flesh is, and you remember that list, enmities and bitterness and strife and carousing and sexual immorality and sorcery. And it's got this sorted list, life in the flesh, but life in the spirit consists of the fruit of the spirit, which is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Two ways of living, two kinds of fruit. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, it's referring to, and the lust of the eyes. So the idea here is inordinately desiring what we see. In scripture, you know this, you get this intuitively. In scripture, the eyes are often represented as that organ that leads us to temptation so easily. Think of David with Bathsheba. How does that story start? David wasn't where he was supposed to be. He was supposed to be at war with Israel. Instead, he's up on his kingly roof and he sees a chick taking a bath and... <laughs> <laughs> he sees it. Jesus said, he, he said this, right? Our, our eyes lead us into temptation. So Jesus said, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. Now, we know that the eye isn't the problem. The heart is the problem, right? But the eye and the heart are radically connected. And so often what the eye sees, the heart wants. That's why we need to pay careful attention to what the Old Testament prophet said and to what we hear in Galatians, Romans, and Hebrews. The righteous shall walk by faith, not by sight. We're to be giving ourselves to something that we actually cannot always see. Yet the eyes are radically connected to the heart. The lust of the eyes. I eye causes you to sing, gouge it out. The psalmist was getting at it when he said this. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. He knew that what he put in front of himself would soon become a part of himself. You've heard the saying, what you eat is what you are but also what you see forms who we are because it forms what we go after, what we lust after, the lust of the eyes. The eyes are related to the heart. And then the boastful pride of life. This is a spirit of self-sufficiency. It's a desire for recognition, applause, status, advantage, control, control issues. This is the idea of one-upsmanship, okay? So, verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, having to do with passions, the lust of the eyes, can be possessions, but also passions, and the boastful pride of life, may be position, one-upsmanship, is not from the Father. Here's the reasoning. Here's why we don't love the world. That's not from the Father. If it's not from the Father, where is it? Where's it from? Satan. Satan. Let's just make it simple. There's two options there. It's real clear back in the garden, Genesis chapter three, verse six, we see the same exact thing, okay? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, there's a parallel to the lust of the flesh, okay? It appealed to physical passion. And that it was a delight to the eyes. Oh, look at the fruit. It's so nice to see. Lust of the eyes. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Advancement, exalting of self, the boastful pride of life. She took from its fruit and she ate. These things are not from the Father, but from the world. And what John is getting at is this idea. Brothers and sisters, whom I love, the Father has better things for us than the world has to offer. No matter how it gratifies in the moment, no matter how shiny it is, no matter how slick it seems, no matter how common it is, right? There's the problem. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's watching it. Everybody listens to it. Everybody sees it. Everybody subscribes to it. John is saying, don't be everybody. Be faithful to a greater affection. Don't go the way of the world. Be renewed in your mind. There are greater gifts in this life than the world has to offer, that which the Father has to offer. So verse 16 reminds us that there are better gifts, a greater joy. Now finally, verse 17 reminds us that there is a better future, a greater reality. Verse 17 says, and the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. So verse 15 was a command, and verse 16 was a reasoning. Verse 17 is the promise. The world is passing away, and also it's less, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. You have to read will of God there through the lens of the gospel. We don't read the New Testament separate from the gospel, right? If you look at chapter 3, verse 23, it tells us expressly what he's getting at, and this is a commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. So it's talking about salvation by faith through Jesus, but then a life of bringing glory to Christ and having fruitfulness in our own life. So it's not saying the one who obeys the law for salvation will live forever. Christ showed that not to be true. That's not the good news. That's a horrific lie. But look at the juxtaposition here. There is eternal value placed before us and temporal value value to be sure here we get down to the nitty gritty there is satisfaction offered and gratification that tempts us the world is passing away what we must ask ourselves daily daily is this do i merely want to be gratified or do i want to pursue being satisfied do i want the short term payoff or the long-term payoff. In the Greek grammar, it's clear that John is saying the world is already passing away. It's already decaying. Even scientists tell us this, right? It's called entropy, the second law of thermodynamics. It's winding down. It's decaying. Eschatology tells us this, right? And John is telling us the world is passing away. It doesn't last forever. The world is like cottage cheese, it has an expiration date. And the nearer we get to it, the nastier it gets. And there hopefully comes a time when you say, I'm not eating that cottage cheese anymore. We are too near the expiration date. And this world has an expiration date. It's called the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it may be time when the Christian looks and says, I'm not eating the cottage cheese anymore. The expiration date is too near. The world is passing away and also it's lusts. He's saying to us that to invest in gratification is a bad investment. What have I told you? I have an investment for you. And for two or three years, it'll pay a 100% dividend. Dividend, whatever that word is. I don't invest. But after that, you'll lose everything. But it's going to be an awesome two or three years. What idiot says, yeah, I'll do the two or three years, get the 100%, and then lose everything? It's a bad investment. Yeah, people do. But it's a bad investment. Investing in the gratification of the world is a bad investment. It is passing away. It will not pay dividends. It does not have eternal value. Jesus said Satan came representing the world because he's a God of the world and the ruler of the world and he came to kill, steal, and destroy. There's a way that seems right to man. But I came that they might have life and life more abundantly. Eternal life, which is both quantitative and qualitative. The quality of life in Christ. Lesser gifts tempt us. Lesser joys, lesser realities. Think about when Jesus fed the multitudes and then he wanted to escape from them so he went to the other side of the lake and they ran around the lake and they met him there because they just could not let this guy go who was feeding them that way. And look what he said to them because they wanted to make him king. They ran and they're like, Jesus, dude, we want you to be the king. Right? Every other man in the world would be like, yeah, totally. <laughs> I should totally be the king. But look what Jesus said. I tell you the truth. You're looking for me. And they wanted to make him king. Not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. And Jesus is being... I don't want to say Jesus is being mean here, but the word that he uses for fill was the same word that they would use in that culture for an animal that just filled his stomach. He said, you guys are, you guys are acting like animals. You're, 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 you're living, your will is being directed by base things. You've just got a full stomach and now you want to base everything on that? He says to them, don't work for food that spoils, cottage cheese, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. See, Jesus had a low view of even legitimate appetites if they dulled our appetite for better things. That's why Jesus called himself the bread of life. We're given legitimate appetites, but we're not supposed to let them dull our appetite for what truly satisfies. And that's the problem with gratification is we can work really hard to keep ourselves so gratified that we never get worried about the fact that we're dissatisfied. That's exactly what, by the scheme of Satan, our culture is endeavoring to do, to put everything at our fingertips so that we are so gratified, we never wake up and realize we're dissatisfied. That's a scary thing. Contrast their appetite with King David's, who when he wrote this, which I'll show you in a moment from Psalm 63, was in a real desert, and he was truly thirsty, and he was truly hungry, but he knew that his physical hunger and his physical thirst pointed to something deeper and truer, Psalm 63. He said, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. And a dry and weary land where there's no water, right? He could have stopped right there and said, I'm in a desert. I need water. I'm not worried about spiritual things. Dude, I just need water. He knew that water would gratify, but it wouldn't ultimately satisfy. This is so radical. He says this, I'm longing for you because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. Is your soul satisfied? Are we merely living in a place where the flesh is gratified? This text is challenging us in those things. You see, the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life... They're just spiritual hot dogs that we fill ourselves with while God is offering us a banqueting table. And what they do is they kill our appetite for the truer things. We can fill ourselves with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life and dull our appetite for what truly nourishes. And the the thing that's funny about the stuff of the world is the more we eat it, The less we like it, but the more we want it. That's weird. The things of the world. The more we eat it, the less we like it. It doesn't satisfy. But the more we want it. Because we've given ourselves to pursuing being gratified rather than satisfied in Christ. I am the bread of life. C.S. Lewis said this. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, it's not that God doesn't want us to be pleased in this life. He wants us to be ultimately pleased and that only happens in the person of Christ and that is the warning and the good news of the text amen Amen. lord thank you for this wonderful truth and help us now our hearts will never be free from their love affair with the world until they discover the greater love that is in you And so help us with that, Lord. Say to us, come, you who are thirsty and weary. Why spend money on what doesn't satisfy? Come, and you will be delighted in the richest affair. Help us, Lord, to seek satisfaction in you. Show us where we're merely gratified and lead us to drink deeply of living waters. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.